Hello cult hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm Stephen Mather, Celine's dad, and also interested in cults. Um, I also work as an organisational psychologist um, and I was a member of a group until I was about 30. So welcome to the show everyone. Uh, so we've got a, a guest today. We're really looking forward to speaking to Todd. So we're going to speak to Todd Brown. And Todd was a member of a group, um, a member of a group that um, I suppose comes under the description of a Sufi group. So um, I'm sure Todd will tell us a little bit about that. Welcome, Todd, to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's great to, it's great to talk to you. And um, yeah, so maybe we start there. Just tell us a little bit about um, how you ended up in this group. Um, and as we go, you're, I'm sure you'll tell us a little bit about the group and we'll, we'll sort of, we'll do that as we go. So what, what, uh, what was the group that you're in and how did you end up in it? Um, well, as you know, that's a complicated <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, and just so you know, this is about my third anniversary of getting out. And it's, okay. so it's, I think everyone who's left a group like this, there's, I don't know, or any kind of grief process, there's these anniversary times. So things are really raw right now for me. It happened. I got out right as lockdown happened. So for me, lockdown was really an important liberatory thing. Um, so in telling the story, I feel like it's changed in the three years a lot. And now I feel a little bit more to go back a little farther about how I ended up in it. Um, Mm -hmm. The group is located in Southern Illinois in America. Uh, It's a really small group. So just really briefly, the big arc is I would have, I would describe myself growing up as a very emotional sensitive kid uh, as a teenager. I grew up in a really liberal environment, academic. My, my father was a professor. My mother was a feminist, just sort of, and, and not religious. They were, they were both rebels against their religious upbringing. And so I was raised with no religion, except to be a liberal. A dem- for In America, it's to be a Democrat. That was my religion. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was way worse to be a Republican in my family than anything else. So, um, and uh, so I, but I remember these moments where I was just really tuned into injustice in the world. And as a white kid, you know, learning like, you know, later as a teenager realizing, Hey, there's racism. This is horrible. You know, or like poverty is just, just, I was always very tuned into unfairness right and um and then 11 12 13 years old realizing i was gay and it's the 80s so that was you know turbulent just like it still is but at that moment you know hiding who i was and came out to my best friend at about 17 and then i and then i went to university um I had a lot of options just because I was the youngest kid and my father's a professor. So I went to a really politically progressive liberal college and, and um, came out there and 
I found myself being really interested in justice and, but, but I was attracted to religious language, which was a little bit surprising to me. I ended up being a religion major hmm. um, and really interested in like feminist theology and liberation theology out of Central America. And, and so I really kind of aligned my thinking there with political movements and social justice movements. And I ended up, um, after I finished that degree, moving to New York City and attending a seminary called Union Seminary and getting a Master's of Divinity degree, um, because that place was very politically minded. And I, you know, I really tried to kind of fit myself into a Christian environment and never really could. I, I always was like, what, how does this make any sense to me? It never landed. Just almost anything about Christianity was a little bit like, what is happening here? And then, and, and I just, this is, this sort of, this sort of makes my cult entry more interesting because I was, I was, I used to write papers and my thesis was about against hierarchy in religious environments and theology. So this, I was always like co-creation and, you know, anti-patriarchal theology. And that was, it was the way that I thought and believed right now a lot happened. So that was, by the time I finished there, I was 25 and I had, without getting into a lot of detail, it was really tumultuous emotionally, psychologically. I was, I was not in great shape um, for childhood, you know, not to be specific, but childhood abuse issues were coming up and things that I didn't know were happening and I was kind of falling apart. I ended up back in school after a few years break in my hometown in Indiana going to doing a PhD in my dad's old department. And meanwhile, I mean, I would just describe in general that I was pretty unbalanced and, um, 1997, a friend, I had, I had a friend in New York city. He said, he, we, he, he and I were talking, he said, Hey, I've been hanging out with these soupies. And I go, that's, that's cool. It didn't really mean much to me. That sounds interesting. And, and, and I remember having these kind of cultural um, prejudices, I would say. And I'm like, aren't they homophobic? Like, where are they from? Like who, what's, what's happening here? You know? And he's like, no, they're great. And he told me a story about how a friend of his who was in hospice, uh, with AIDS, how they invited him to the house in in Illinois, and how they were there and they nursed him, and and how his mother and I was like, wow, that's beautiful, you know. Mm -hmm. um, he said, why don't you come down here to visit? And it was a four hour drive, which you know, in in America is very. It's yeah. like that's what you do for lunch. I know you have a different. I know you'll have a different perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um he invited me and i remember him saying something like well let me ask the sheikh if it's okay and i was like okay there's there's a sheikh like there's a what is, what is that you know and mm. and you know my my 
principles or my kind of politics were really suspicious mm. of this kind of leadership. But I'm like, well, there's Sufi. I don't know. I'm respectful of other traditions. So sure. let me yep. see what this is. And and I went and I I drove the four hours and I walked into this house in this little town. It's a college town. And uh, it was... Now, as I'm saying these stories, I know none of this will surprise you because this is so archetypically cultish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like okay. yeah, a beautiful yeah. place. Like, wow, this house is beautiful. Like, look at the roses in the yard. Mm -hmm. Walk in and it's like clean. And then um, there's a big chair in the front room. And, uh, and the story, what I remember is this, this is a great story, is that I walk into this house and I plop right down on the big chair, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, which of course this became this big metaphor about like, oh, he's sitting in the guru's chair. Doesn't you know who does he think he is? And all this yeah. stuff. But but that, that 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 came later. I mean, at first it was like, wow, beautiful, and then mm -hmm. and then I was really caught off guard by the kind of lib. I'm putting this in quotes. The kind of liberalism of the environment. Like mm -hmm. we accept people and. There's a lot of like, there were people, there were Europeans and lots of really educated people that I met and um, people who had left their, whatever they were doing and come and join this group. And it was small, but it was all, and, and they also had, they had really kind of eco values and they had a farm and they were developing an organic garden. And I was really struck, surprised, I think, my experience with religious spiritual groups was that mostly they were sort of apolitical you know, they were they didn't have a farm you know they sure. and then there were these practices they were doing which to me were really romantic and beautiful getting up every single morning prayers chanting meditation um i loved that stuff right and and, and you know looking back on it I think the fact that it was, I would say, a little bit romantically not Christian or American was really attractive because it, it kind of fit into my sense, my sensibilities of being like international and anti-racist. And, and the, the, it's like if it had been a Christian group, I would have been like, bye, you know, no. Yeah. <laughs> but this, yeah. There was something here that was like, you know, different. Um, I mean, yeah. I I suppose the novel nature of it um, yes. is is that like you want to you're in, you're inquisitive and there's all these people there that that are admirable in in many ways mm -hmm. and um, you know there's a there's a term that I'm sure you're familiar with love bombing um, yes which is is I guess you had a bit of that as well you know you know anybody is welcome you're absolutely welcome and um, yeah. Mm -hmm come in come in and it's it, yes, it's very attractive or it can be very attractive i think there's 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 a, a refrain they used to sing from a Rumi poem which was come come whoever you are wanderers worshipers lovers of leaving and i was like oh my god i mean just it pulled on all the things like all the parts of me that wanted wanted to be part of this little political gang of people who are really going to change the world people yeah. who were really confronting and really not scared to change their lives like that. All of those things were present. 
That's really and, interesting. Um, yeah, it was powerful. Yeah, there was a. There, you've reminded me of a of a song we used to sing. Uh, we we didn't call them hymns, but um, a kingdom song. It was. It went something like "Come ye, all you thirsty ones." Yes. Um, so th there's this um, sense of we're looking for people like you, the thirsty mm -hmm. ones, the curious ones, the the ones like us, and that I think that gives you that feeling of um, well importance, and it, it boosts your ego a little bit, doesn't it? And and you feel like yeah. oh, I've, maybe I found my people, maybe I found the people that I belong with so yeah that's very that's very persuasive yeah okay so you're you're you've been attracted to this group you're attracted to this these practices that seem really interesting mm -hmm. and um philosophically they align to or seems to align to a lot of your thoughts although not in every area because you're you're fiercely anti-patriarchal um, mm -hmm. um and yet, you know, you're you're joining or you're you're starting to be interested in a group that is quite that. So um, yeah, so I've interrupted you now. So tell us a bit more, um, please, uh, Todd. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So so I mean, I would describe the next year or so as being sort of groomed into being okay, okay with the guru. And that, when I look back on it, it really didn't happen mostly through him. It happened through the people around him. Like, for, so for example, I found out that he had two wives. And at first I'm kind of like, what the, you know, how is this okay? Like I had a really strong reaction to that. But then the, the wives, especially wife number one, had an extraordinarily powerful impact on how I felt about that. Because she, and she is a, uh, still is because I'm still in the same little town um, was so kind of big in personality and, and uh, you know, lovely and open hearted and beautiful and not scared. And, and, and at one point she sat me down, like, do I seem oppressed to you? You know, like, you know, and, and to me, it was, that was one of the most formidable things because, I was just, I thought, no, you don't, you seem fine. Like you seem so empowered. And, um, and then, and then, and then she, she and the people around the Sheikh, they, these things are hard to explain. You understand, mm -hmm. but I'm also assuming that you understand them. <laughs> it's like everything points to him. So they're like, well, you should, you know, he's given me everything or he, and it, and it was subtle at first. You know, and then and he was sort of taking a back seat. But then very gradually I came into a relationship with him. But by the time I started to become more intimate in my relationship with him, I was already really committed, you know. Mm -hmm. Um and and then he would during that year, he would do things, he did a, several things that helped me trust him more. Like, so if I had any red flags in me about like, is this a cult? Is this weird? Is he power hungry? Mm -hmm. He would do things like he, for example, one of the big ones, he's, he told me, go ahead. And I said, I want to move here. I want to quit school. And he said, he said, no, you know, he said, be, take your time at school. Like, this is like any relationship. It takes time. And that actually made me trust him more. I just was like, oh, that's not cultic, right? That this is yeah. a person who's not 
needing me to, this is a person who wants me to take time and like yeah. really think of this is for you. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, you know, and then it, it wasn't long before I started to really desire his attention. And, you know, it's, it's a mysterious process. I feel, I feel like the next, you know, however long I live, I'll be trying to understand how I fell for that. You know, or like mm. I, it was a combination of falling in love, you know, really truly falling in love with him and the, the people and, and, and looking at the people and going like, wow, you're, you know, you're a, I mean, for example, like you're a Dutch scientist, you know, and uh, like these brilliant people who trust him. And I'm like, well, I, I can trust him too. And then of course my friend who was another gay guy who introduced me to him and I'm who, and then the story of him nursing a man with AIDS, I was like, well, I can, I can be myself here. Like no one's telling me I can't be gay here. So let me just, you know, so in short, and a, a year later, after meeting them, I quit my PhD program, program and I moved to this little town to be a part of it. And that was 1998. So how long before certain things that you thought were true or were kind of promised, like, um, you know, this, oh, it's fine being gay here, that was not a problem. How long before that starts being, you know, questioned or how long, how long, I guess, does the honeymoon phase last once you get there? Well, it's interesting. Okay. It's an interesting question because mm-hmm. I stayed in for 23 years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was a true believer. So, so if there were conflicts or doubts that I had or things that I ran into that were confusing, I stored them away. Mm-hmm. So in other words, looking back I can see that there was a honeymoon period that ended, but in the middle of it, while I was living it, if you had asked me, I would have said, no, it's fine. And I love it. Mm -hmm. This is perfect for me. So Hmm. what happened was really a slow, I I remember, okay, this, this is really, it's kind of ingenious the way that they built it because they have total deniability. Nobody ever said to me, you can't be a gay person. Mm -hmm. Right. But this is what happened. I learned over time that the goal, both explicit and implicit, was for me to be close to the guru. And and I I did take I took a vow of obedience and I got a ring, which symbolized our connection. I got a new name. I was given an Arabic name. Um, there were rituals where I, and the vow of obedience was that I would I would obey him and that I would consult him and matters of life importance. And I tried to do that and I kind of learned how to do that. And so I was living in the main house. We had a house and there were, I don't know, there might've been 30, 40 people in the community at that, maybe more. I think at the, at the biggest, it got to be about a hundred people. Okay. Um, Just so you have some idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember these moments where I started to, it's very hard to, exp- to describe this. So I'm in this house. A woman moves in. There's six or seven of us in the house. And this is the community house where everyone comes every morning for the, for the services. And we have, you know, weekly meetings and lo- lots of different meetings. And I remember at some point thinking, 
I should be with her. And there was one other thing that happened. There was a, there was a gay guy who came to visit. And I remember at some point going to, we called him Murshid and that's not his real name. I can call him that because it's a title. It means guide or teacher. And I remember going to him and saying like, Hey, this gay guy is here. You know, what, what do you think about? And he said, that would be the worst thing in the world for you to do right now to get in a relationship like that. So, and, and it wasn't related to gayness. It just was like, mm. well, I'm wounded and I'm new and I'm learning the ropes and mm. don't do something crazy. So I just was like, okay, yeah, yes, yes, Baba. Right. And a, a woman moved in and she, and I, and I remember during a meditation or a, we did these long chants and long meditations, which I, I know now are sort of mind altering, but I remember thinking like, I should be with her. I should, and, it, and it, it's a very complicated thing because it was this combination of thinking, feeling, and thinking that if I, if I wanted to be close to him, that I needed to pursue this. And right. there were these different mythologies in the group about like, you know, marriage is half the path. Uh, there was emphasis on relationship and marriage um but not in this strict dogmatic way it was this very deniable way but i remember still inside of myself interpreting this as sort of god's will it's like well i need to be closer to her and there's there was a feeling of opening in me of like okay this is the direction to go and it wasn't like it wasn't like i'm not gay anymore it was like i should do this um God is leading me to this. Um, and then I, and then in that process, I started to scramble what I knew to be true in my brain. So, you know, coming out as a gay person is like, it's this feeling of like, Oh, I'm attracted to men. Um, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm pursuing that like this sort of, but then this process was sort of like, okay, let, let me make a commitment or a decision that would um, not give my body and its sexual desires all of the power. And, it, and, it, and again, this is like over a year and it's like my mind deciding what's true and real and, mm. and, and de deciding somehow that to make this commitment to, in our case, God, well, I'll just say to God was to somehow transcend what my body felt like it needed, you know, sort of mm. diminishing the importance of that and embracing the importance of committing to this marriage. So, so at the time I didn't think of it as like gay is wrong. I just thought I'm making, I'm going to make this decision and it's going to be a commitment to be with this woman. And I had never had a relationship with a woman. Uh, not since you know what do you call it sixth form or something <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, since since i was a adolescent yeah um so this the, this is um obviously really interesting and, uh, and a very yeah. personal experience todd um so i hesitate to try and um, kind of make sense of it in my own way but um so correct me if you think i'm i'm way off but do you think there's an element there of you know, all the stories you were hearing, all the models that are presented to you as perfection and as the way that 
I guess, both the guru and the interpretation of God, all the things that 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 valued, that they valued, seem to be a certain way. And so there is a natural, I guess, desire. If you want to be close to, to the guru and close to the God that you're being described, you're going to want to um, kind of be as close to that model yeah. as possible. Is that is that what do you think was going on? Yeah. Yeah, like I... I'm, I'm an achievement oriented person and I got into that environment and I wanted to do it really as well as possible. And I, yeah. and I didn't, I didn't want to be one of these people who was conflicted or who, you know, it, it, it was, it's really double-sided because I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be the best at it. That's just the way that I, like, I wanted to fully do it. And and I and I would look at other people and I'd be like, wow, they were they're half doing it. Like I'm going to completely do it, <laughs> which yeah. made me kind of a horribly dogmatic. It turned me into that. So like mm-hmm. you know, if if you put me in, yeah, I would have been. No matter what context I was in, I would have been one of the insufferably worst, perfect, per people trying to you know trying to be that. So yeah, I I I, I tried to be what I saw, yeah. and there was not there wasn't a gay relationship in that environment, even though the people in that environment were not saying gay people are bad. Yeah. Yeah. And there were also, what I learned there were, there were models of gender, which there was like the men, there were the men and there were the women. And as, as Sufi cultures go in the world or it, it was pretty mixy, like it wasn't like, but you know, when it came to, when it came to, um, worship it was prayers were separate when it came to chanting women were here and men were here okay and so there was a lot there about like how to be a man and how to be a woman and again i couldn't have articulated it at the time i just knew that i wanted to be part of this thing and then i decided that i would do it completely so part of that in my brain was what you just said like learning from the people there how to do this and how I would be successful in that environment. And that included for me, marrying, having a relationship with a woman and asking for permission to marry her and then marrying her, which is what I did. Now it's, it's perfect because, you know, if you go to them and if you went to the group, now the guru and merchant said like, Hey, did you tell him that he had to do that? He'd say, of course not. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's he, never told me that, he never said, oh, you're a gay guy and you shouldn't do that. <laughs> he never did that. that. Yeah. But it's still, it's very, it's a very powerful tool that mm-hmm. to, um, you know, we are social creatures and therefore we are going to take our lead. I think from others, um, I think also your point about falling in love, it's something we've heard before mm-hmm. um, on the podcast, even with, um people who are very analytical i think um yanya lalic uh dr mm-hmm. yanya lalic talked about that herself it's a lot like falling in love and it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting todd because obviously i'm a born in member of mm-hmm. a group so i've um i feel like i've i never experienced that because mm-hmm. it was just always i was always in it mm-hmm. um obviously that comes with many specific um difficulties and and so on um, yes 
but so so does um going into a group because you've obviously that's an experience that, that i've never had and that feeling of being um yeah just just um that emotional feeling of of, of being attracted to to a group or a way of life must be very intoxicating so yeah mm -hmm. that's that's really interesting mm -hmm. um so do you want to jump forward a little bit in your story todd so i mean obviously so how many years did you say 26 years was it 23 23 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. so obviously heck of a lot happened in 23 years i'm sure yes. <laughs> but um I suppose I've got two two main um, areas of questions. One is, uh, we don't need lots and lots of detail, but a little bit about what you believed during that time. So the the theology, it's, in some respects, it's not that important um, to cult life because all cults have different theologies yes. or philosophies, and ultimately, it's the way they it's the way they manipulate and coerce people is the interesting bit. But I just personally have a a slight fascination for belief systems and and what they are so that's kind of an interest of mine so maybe maybe you could um just uh give us a very high level overview of the beliefs that you had um about your life here on earth and what your future hopes would be and um and that sort of that sort of stuff yeah okay um I mean, a lot of it attracted me too because it was sort of soupy and mystical. And yeah. with that, with, there wasn't, there was no emphasis on afterlife. Um, okay. There, there, uh, it was here now. Um, and so let me, let me talk about soupy a little bit. Um, it has a thousand different uh, manifestations and it depends on culture. I think in this particular case, it served to give him a super legitimizing story, backstory, which right. was very romantic. Um, and of course, when someone is divine, as everyone knows, they can get away with any kind of behavior. So it, it, it served to justify his ability to do anything he needed to do and say that it was divinely inspired. Right. So his backstory is that he was always a seeker. Um, he's a he's a he's a Jewish American guy. Uh, the the guru who we called Murshid. He very generally the story is that he in a dream um, met his guru, his master, and that um, somebody from that family came to the United States and found him. He flew to Bangladesh. He developed a relationship with a the master. They there are another these beautiful romantic stories. He instantly recognized him as son, father, and son, and he was embraced. And he he gave up his whole life to to give himself to submit himself to his master. So he was the ultimate model for how to submit to his master. Now, and um, it's the first time I'm saying this, but in this particular case. In Western ideas about Sufism, it's not always connected to Islam, but traditionally it's a Muslim, uh, it's a manifestation of Islamic uh, tradition. And in this particular case, and I think in many cases for Sufi sheikhs, I'm putting that in quotes, they can trace a lineage of spiritual permission back to the Prophet Muhammad. Okay, so... Okay. 
So, and, and there's this idea of permission and sort of, tra- uh, um, I'm missing the words here, but just transmission where um, there's a certain enlightenment uh, illumination that is literally passed from hand to hand. Okay. And we had on our walls something called a silsila, which is like a, it's, which I think is the literal translation of this word is chain, which shows it has the list of names going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad, as if it were kind of an, an unbroken chain of hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that that story, and and then and then we he would take this master had died, but there were stories of him. And then he, he, he had this connection. Murshid still had this connection with Bangladesh. So I actually traveled there. So I traveled there. I saw the place. I saw the tombs of the masters. I saw the projects uh, like orphanages and schools that this, that his master had created and that he had sort of been and And the story is that the master gave him the mantle of this and, and that his his mission was to go to his go to the west and teach true islam so that's what he brought to us mm-hmm. so that was the backstory which of course okay. for someone like me was extremely uh, intoxicating yeah. and kind of and, and i believed it because of the way that he like any of these gurus held himself and carried himself which was in this sort of like incredibly 100% confidence. I mean, I don't want to use, well, I'm going to use the word narcissist just because it's something I've learned since to just say like only, only his point of view existed. It was legitimized by this powerful spiritual tradition and sort of camouflaged with these chanting, um, these powerful practices that surrounded him, which he led and orchestrated. And then over time, I came to believe all kinds of magical things about him. Like he could control the weather or like he knew that he could, he knew the future or he, Mm -hmm. and I certainly believed that he knew me better than I knew myself. Mm -hmm. So I came to interact with him in a way that was submission and it was explicitly as servant he was my master. I was his servant. And, and I intended to manifest that in as many ways as I could. You know, as you know, it's 23 years of stories. I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church, if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, 
dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a mind check. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just £1 or $1.50 and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. Did you say there that he was the master and you were the servant? Yeah, and that was explicit in the in the words. I okay. was... He was the guide. I was the follower. Our job was to empty ourselves completely into him. Language like submission and servanthood, mm. even, even a word like a slave would be tossed around as, you know, and, and, and that's how we interacted with him. He came into the room. We stood. We never put our feet to him. We, we went to him for any kind of guidance. Uh, anything that was going to be publicly or um, even internally uh, taught, uh, produced, created, published, he you know crossed every T, dotted every I. Nothing happened without his permission. And if we did something without his permission, we would face rather intense admonishment, shaming. Like again, there's lots and lots and lots of stories about that. But but you know the just like in any cult the the environment and the culture was created in such a way that I blamed myself and I, and I always turned it back to reflect on myself and my own. So if something came at me that was admonishing, punishing, um, correcting, it was my job to learn and to take in the feedback and to just grow with it and to learn how to be a better servant. Mm, Yeah. So did that yeah again that's very common that's um yeah. we hear that a lot and i i remember that too um if there's something you didn't understand or struggled to agree with even you know that the, the fault was with me the fault yes. is with you isn't it not with the with the organization or in in your case the the guru um um I, I, without getting into details of people, individual people, but often um, in these groups, there's a kind of there's some facilitators to the to the main leader. So was that the case with you? So you had um, the, the, there may have been one or two people that kind of facilitated a lot of what was going on. Was that yeah. the case? That's that's one of the most fascinating things because you know after I've come out and I, I watch all the documentaries, it's like oh my. Yeah. God, this is the same it's like mm. it's like uh you know with nixium with um with uh like and the, people like gillane maxwell with jeffrey epstein these i'm like oh my god there's how many yeah. times they're like a little group of women who are doing all the work you know yeah. it's like it's so weird you know and it, it was ex- and it's a hundred percent like that there's two wives which eventually came became three wives and 
they are on the ground making it all work. And, mm-hmm. and th- this group in this little town is, has an especially interesting story in the, in the sense that it's had a huge effect on this little community. So this is an example. Wife, they, they bought one of the kind of the coolest little coffee shop locations in maybe like 1999 and developed it into this beautiful vegetarian restaurant. And it's, it's perfect because everyone who walks in there goes like, God, this place is so cool. Right. So it, and it, it provides such an important function of just like, Oh, the soupies on this. God, this place is great. You know, like, and, and plus it's sort of an economically deprived area. So it, it's almost like the town was like the vulnerable, you know, female college student where it's like they came in, they bought this thing, they made it beautiful. And wife number one has been the general manager of this place. And I worked for her for 20 years. It's like, I worked, I worked at the coffee shop. I was, I worked at the bakery. Like this is so typical of the story, but the place is beautiful. And she is an absolutely dynamic human being. So for me, since I've left the group, I look back and I go like, oh my God, she is the supreme, perfectly orchestrated and enacted gaslighter of this whole thing because mm-hmm. she's public facing. She's very well known. She's loud and exciting and she loves you. And she's, she brings artwork in and she's, she's, a you know, and she does all of this work for him to make it look fine. And he's in the background doing whatever he wants. And he he strolls through the bakery and he can, anything he does, she jumps on it, you know. And, and I can tell you so many examples of her defending him, no matter what, mm-hmm. her leading us all to him um, for all the different reasons, and her behaving as if everything is completely fine all the time, mm-hmm. you know. So... Um, and then the other two wives have sort of different characteristics, but essential roles too, in protecting him, defending him and leading everybody to him and also pursuing people who seem interested. So, you know, like somebody's like, somebody seems vulnerable or interested or, you know, what's going on with the Subis here? And suddenly there's a wife shows up like, Hey, do you want to talk about this? And then, and then there are all these projects. So the, and this, this is where I see a lot of similarities with Scientology is that there's some, there's, there's a nonprofit which raises money for the orphanages in Bangladesh. There's a, there's a, there was a childcare center. There was a, a homeschooling collective and it draws people in mm-hmm. uh, literally like, Hey, you're a single mom with a young kid. Like, Hey, we have a childcare center, you know, and no one's and 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 in the group, we all denied that we recruited. Um, but now I go, Oh my God, there are all these little mechanisms for how the thing looks beneficent. And even the, the local university has, has a student group that does work for the, for the nonprofit. Cause the non, like, how can you argue with raising money for orphans? And then, so so yeah, yes, there's the, there's the women, there's the wives, there's the inner circle who do this work. And he mostly stays very, very private and has his little kind of 
hobbies that he does. And then every once in a while, he shows up and behind the scenes runs every little tiny thing about it. That's really interesting. And that creates a sense of um, slightly mystery as well, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. you don't you don't really get to know them that well because um, that the front the front women are um, are doing the legwork, and yep. um, that means he can um, sit in the background. And I think that's uh, also uh, with the the various different avenues that that the ways into the group. Um, what also that that does is it means that you get to a situation where pretty much every part of your life is, um, you know, there's an option there to do it through this group. Um, and even some, some examples of commercial groups or commer- um, you know, businesses um, mm-hmm. that have gone down that route. I mean, next team itself is a good example, but I was thinking of um, we work, which um, it's under mm-hmm. new management now, but if you look at how the, the organization kind of, went into almost a cult-like if not mm-hmm. a cult-like um way of behavior and part of that was that yeah you could put your kids off there you could live in their properties you could do your washing there um sports bars everything you know you didn't actually have to go anywhere else mm-hmm. um for anything and i think that's that's the other thing it creates this self-contained bubble doesn't it where you can just um be there all the time that's that's where i, I actually just did a master's research report using um, Robert J. Lipton's kind of like the, this sort of totalistic. I love his word yes. totalistic. That's that's what this was. It's like I worked for them. I lived in the properties. I was married to them. Um, I, my volunteer work, everything was in this little um, bubble. And yeah. it it groups like this profess to meet all of your needs. Yes. Right. So, so I guess um, at some point you you move away from it. You said that um, during lockdown, during the COVID lockdowns, are when you you start to really ask more questions, um, and that's a big part of your leaving. Do you want to tell us a little bit of that story? You know, how do you end up leaving? It seems like they've got you pretty well locked down. What 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 happens? Yeah, I was, I was working, you know, all of my hours I was giving to them through, I was, I had a paid job, but I also did all of my volunteer work through them. And um, I didn't mention I had a, I had a, a, a kid too. So the, my wife and my child and we, we were involved. And then I think the main thing that happened is that my parents moved my elderly parents moved to town and just to be close to one of their children yeah so they had a house and i had we had been living collectively um right near right above the bakery and so you know again it's a little bit hard to explain i think there there were some seeds planted that were i would just in a couple sentences say that my managing the bakery and starting to do social media through the bakery, I started to reconnect with some people from my previous life. So I started to have these social media relationships with um, people who I'd known before. That was one thing that happened. And then, and then the big thing was that my wife at the time, against huge resistance, wow, she was a very strong person, 
helped us move in with my mother. And I, I, ne- I was one of these people who never asked for anything. Like I probably, I would probably never, I never asked for a raise. I never, I just felt like that was not okay. So, so we ended up moving out of the collective housing, living and living about two miles away and with my mother. Um, so when lockdown came, it was, you know, as everybody knows, it was really disorienting. And, and again, this is a very too simple version of this story, but here we were. And suddenly all of our programs were canceled. You know, the Thursday night thing, the Friday thing, the Saturday morning thing, because we had things almost every day that we did collectively as a group. Plus I was always at work and we, I was just intimate with everybody. And suddenly I didn't have to go. And I think the primary feeling of course was enormous relief, but then it takes, it took me like maybe a week or two to admit that I felt relief because of course I felt horribly guilty because I'm not supposed to want that. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I felt like, God, this, and then I think, I think, I think, I think I said it out loud to my wife. Like I was kind of like, this is, this is okay. You know? And, and it was scary to say those things. I'm, I see you laughing because you, because you understand, I, you understand. Well, I do. I, I do. Right? And, and what is really, um, the reason I'm, I'm smiling so much is because yeah. it sounds so much like some, um, members of my, my former group talking about exactly the same thing, you know, yeah. um, we had regular meetings on a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Sunday yeah. and then um, ministry where we'd knock on doors on a Saturday morning. Um, you'd be encouraged to go out during the week as well. And yeah, it was, it's such a, a hamster wheel, we call it, you know, that kind of uh, constant. Yes. And that's part of, again, the cult tactics, you know, keep you busy, 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 don't have time to think. And then suddenly the, the really odd thing, this um, this thing that clearly was one of the worst things to happen to humanity for the last hundred years, <laughs> yeah, has this strange um, silver lining for for so many people. It's just a, a way of getting off that hamster wheel and just yeah. looking at your life again. Yeah, so that's that's why I'm kind of smiling and recognizing. Yeah, it was really. I I really feel like the physical space was the thing that helped me get out because. Mm. I would have just kept going forever. I mean, maybe, I mean, they are way too powerful for me to confront. I, I could not even feel around them. Like, so finally I had space and I also, I knew that they couldn't get me here, which was an amazing feeling. So I remember saying to my wife after a few weeks going like, what would you think about kind of backing off? our community life. And, 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 and she was sort of like, Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was really ready yeah. to do that. And, and it was really scary. So, so I sent an email and it was just, it was very polite because at that point I'm not thinking like, this is a cult. I'm just like, I just, you know, this, this is nice. I need a break. Mm. And, um, so I sent an email and then within 24 hours, I had blocked every single phone number hmm. because I started getting phone calls and I, I knew 
I knew two things. I knew that I would never be able to have a conversation with these people. Maybe it's three things. I knew that they were not going to ask me really how I was feeling and what I, I'm like, they're not. And, and that was because for 23 years in the group, I watched people leave and I watched how they were treated. Mm. I, I knew that I would be discarded as all the things all the things that you know about when you leave a group like this. So, so I blocked everyone. So it's like, I, I was here in my house, just the three of us or with my mother. I locked every door metaphorically. Mm. I closed every window and I was like, okay, it's over. And then that's when things started to feel real, mm -hmm. you know, and, the, and, uh, and it was rough because my wife and my kid were both very conflicted. I mean, it was really, I mean, plus, plus it was locked down. Plus, yeah. I mean, so it was, it was a very intense mm. time. I was, was going to say as well, I guess, going from a very community-based way of living to lockdown, I'm guessing that yeah. was a fairly jarring experience. It was jarring. And, mm -hmm. and then, and then, yeah, I mean, and then for me, I'm just a very, as you can see, I was in school a lot. Like I, I know how to find people and information. So in a, it, very quickly, within a few months, I had a stack of books <laughs> and, and I was on the phone with Dan Shaw and I was connected with Yanya Lalich and like, I was reading, I was, I, I like, I just, I'm super resourceful. So like, I, you know, that, I think I found that coercive control master's degree. What is it? It's Salford or something. And I like, yeah, I got their yeah. book list and I was like, yeah. uh, you know, so, so yeah. I was, I mean, the truth is that like they created this horrible monster, this group did, because I was so ready to like, you know, go to school on this. And then, and then the next thing that happened, which, which was really major was that, without even telling my family, I sat down and I wrote this little essay and it's, it's on medium. And it says, I just quit a cult after 23 years. And I pressed publish and I did not know what was going to happen. Or I, I couldn't, let me just, let me put it this way. I couldn't have predicted because mm. what happened is that, well, first of all, it really upset, of course, my family and the group. They were like, what? and I, I'm not in touch with them anymore. Like I had cut all ties, but mm. there was this giant ripple and my wife was still in touch with some of them and it, they were all so angry. But then mm. the, the, the bigger thing that happened is that 3000 people read it mostly in town because they had never had anyone like this group's been in town for 25 years. Everyone knows the soupies. It was the first time that somebody had said this out loud and literally thousands of people had had a weird feeling in their gut and they had heard rumors. I was the first person to speak publicly about my experience at, you know, and that from the, from the hundreds of people who had sort of come and gone from the group. And so it had this giant effect in my little town to the point where like, I remember going to the health food store and people that I didn't know were like, oh my God, you wrote that. You're the guy who wrote that thing. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh shit, what? <laughs> like, I, I didn't know that was going to happen because I didn't know the effect that this group had had on the community. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. Um, we'll put a link to that, um, that blog on our show notes. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting blog and it's not the only thing you've written about your experiences, is it, um, Todd? So um, people can read a bit more about you there. Mm-hmm. Well, actually what happened before I wrote that thing is I, I just picked up my phone and I just started talking into it. Mm. and and now i have like 200 i have like 300 videos from that from the you know just a few weeks in of me going like and you can watch the transformation of me going like hey i'm just trying to express myself here like Mm. is it okay if i have a feeling (laughs) you know Mm. so so four months later going like i think that is a is a cult because look at like and like wait wait i was treated really badly and then like and then like reading a book, reading, you know, Robert J. Lipton and going like, oh my God, how is it that I recognize myself in these stories of, you know, communist, Chinese communist prison yes. torture? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's really scary to me. How, how, and then me unwinding it and then me finding people like you and mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. So you can kind of observe your deconstruction um, yes. over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll we'll put any any links mm-hmm. you've got that you want people to investigate. Okay. Um, by all means, let us know. And we'll we'll pop them up. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So um, and and as we've always said, you can tell us as much or as little as you want to about any of this stuff. But obviously, you're um, at this point, you've left. Um, you're you're married um, to a woman, um, but actually, I guess you're you're thinking about your sexuality again um, because you're now free from these um this uh this system that that's that's encouraged you to to live in a certain way so um can you tell us anything about that that must be quite difficult for you uh well actually i mean that this is actually the amazing thing that really it really solidified how fucked up that environment was because so i so we're in lockdown again (laughs) this is kind of a it's it's a it's both a horrible horribly painful but also really sweet story because um at some point my wife sat me down and was sort of like what's going on with our relationship and and i hadn't mentioned gayness at all i mean she we all knew back then but i remember i had to come out again like i'm sitting in this room that i'm in right now and i she's like what's going on and i remember sitting here and i'm like i'm gay and it was one of those duh moments of like, how did that get so distorted and hidden, right? And then, and then the cute part, I mean, of course it was hard, really, really hard, you know? Um, but then without really having a conscious intention to, I, I started, there's a man locally <laughs> who I'd known off and on and he was going on hikes and he was posting them on Facebook. And I, I was like, Hey, can I come on a hike with you? And, and so we started, I started going on a hike with this man who's just lovely. And I'll just spoiler alert. We're still together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the feeling of coming back into my body and my sexuality, I, I might cry here. Cause it was so, so 
fucking fundamental. This feeling of like how beautiful and natural this is and, and having letting my body feel desire, letting my body feel and, and, and after years of being in a relationship that was not um, physically, emotionally what I needed and it wasn't for her either, um, the feeling of letting myself go into this new relationship was both incredibly liberating and beautiful, but also it, I, I, the amount of anger that I felt was, and, and you know, here's my colorful language part, it, so just as I would be having these feelings of like, God, I, I just want to hold your hand and how this feels, right? I was also like, fuck you for stealing this from me and for lying to me about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, because I don't know, about, about five years before I left the group, at one point I had said, I had had a conversation with him, like, am I just gay? Like, and he had, he said to me, and I remember every moment of this, he said, do you really think you're going to find like another man who's, who's on the path with you, who's willing to be in a partnership with you. And I kind of laughed at myself, like, no, how silly, of course not. Like, mm -hmm. That would never happen. And so I had to go back and be like, I don't care how holy you think you are. You misled me in the most fundamental way that because, because this feeling of sitting next to this man and what this does to me and for me and how natural and open I feel long story short. Um, my, my wife and I divorced while in lockdown. Mm -hmm. She is now in not far from you married to a, a married to an English guy. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> like they were they're they're close. They're like in, I think it's, it's like, it's like forest being or something like they're 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 like in a they're oh, okay. close to yeah. Yeah, very close to yeah. yeah that is amazing so actually if yeah. if i i might come visit summer so yeah. i might i'll just stop and i'll have we'll meet I'll up have for a, a pint, pint. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh um anyway that happened and then my my kid went to college i'm not i'm they they are they them so that's why i'm not okay. gender um um, and they've had their own intense course of being disoriented and realizing. And then there's one other, there's one other piece that I want to mention. Um, and this was in a way predictable. So as the first, as, as a person who started to share these things publicly, people started to come out of the kind of out of the woodwork, other ex members who I hadn't talked to in years and years and years like, oh my God, thank you for talking about this. Thank you for saying this. And then one young woman and her video is on my YouTube channel. She came forward and said like, oh, by the way, here's the story of how he had, how he assaulted me and how he groomed me sexually and what happened. And I, while of course, well, while, while I'm in the group, I have no access to these stories. So I had to get out and, and create some distance before I could hear them. And then I, and then it was at that point where I realized, okay, this is not a spiritual person who's abusive. This is a con man who's a hundred percent abusive. Like this is not real, you know? And then the big piece of that 
that rippled. There's a satellite community in Germany and that developed over a long period of time, but there was a house there and there's, you know, 30 or 40 devotees and he would travel there and he would, he worked on developing that relationship. And, and um, because he's not there physically, they had a lot more freedom to express when they heard the story of sexual grooming, they, and this, this is a group of 20, 30 people over there. They found it and they read it in their public gathering. And immediately four women over there said, he did that to me too. And then that group over there uh, exploded. It, almost everyone left that group. Hmm. And a group of, and a group of uh, four of the leaders over there sent an email to all the members here saying, you did this, get help. You know, we are not your students anymore. So that's the main thing that happened. And, and so the present day situation is that they're still operating. The businesses are still operating. The, the nonprofit's still operating. What we, what was just me now is now a we. There's a, there's a we group of people who are in different ways talking about this, at least together. I'm, I'm really the most public because as you all know, it's very scary to be public and very vulnerable. And in terms of people's heal, healing, mostly people want to be private and quiet. And, and I've had to learn to balance that. Um, but uh, I'm still in a way searching for ways to tell the story and um but at the same time as it's interesting talking to you people because you're up against a giant monolith institution i'm up against a dude and some followers and so what i say actually it has a really huge impact at the same time, it makes me this giant target. And I know that they, I know that what they say about me is, you know, all the things that, I mean, I'm like the horrible enemy. I'm mentally ill. I'm all these things. They can't see me as a person who has any kind of legitimacy. Um, and uh, I've had to, over these three years, as much as I'm able to try to let it go and not always be fighting with them in my mind and try to. And so now I'm, I'm back in a PhD program. Uh, I'm sort of finishing what I trying to finish what I left. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to find kind of go back and find all the things that I left, like my creativity and my Mm. self-expression. And um, anyway, I'm, that's, you sort of have me up to date now. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, I, I think that's, that's such a, an inspirational story and yeah, I recognize many things that you've described. Um, and there's other things that, you know, from my experience and I'm sure Celine's experience, we can't possibly imagine how difficult it was, but, um, yeah, that's, 
it's great to see you at the other end of that and rediscovering yourself through mm-hmm. things like your creativity and your mm-hmm. your studies. I suppose, like, just because um, it's like, like a, quite a specific experience leaving during the COVID period, and it seems like that had quite a big impact on your leaving. Um, do you think, so in terms of when I was reading some of your blog posts as well, you said about um, kind of, reading about COVID or like the dangers and the need to social distance and thinking like that's important to prioritise that because of like you said in our interview today as well like um, having your parents being more vulnerable because um, older and things like that um, do you think because of COVID and starting to you know have a bit more of a step away from the group that's why you're able to sort of read that content and take that at face value as okay I need to trust that you know, the scientific opinion here versus if you were fully in, um, for instance, like what, why, why was that, I guess, a, um, a point at which you were ready to hear that and take that on and, and run with it, I guess. I mean, it's, it's hard to piece together exactly, but yeah. um, remember I mentioned earlier how I had started to get in touch with some old friends uh-huh. on social media. I, I was in touch with college friends I hadn't ever done Facebook and I was on, suddenly I'm on Facebook and I'm connecting with all these friends who I went to college with. And these people are, you know, they're like scientists and Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they are, they're doctors. And, and so, and I remember I was an anti-vaxxer in the group. So, so I remember reading just in this, in this sort of left-wing social liberal environment on social media, I was, I was in alignment with, I was in agreement with almost everything. It's like, okay, let's, you know, anti-racism, anti-homophobia, like I'm kind of can roll with this. And then they would lay into anti-vax people who didn't vaccinate their kids, like with this, you know, kind of virulence. And I remember feeling like, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm an intelligent person. Like, why would they, don't they realize Mm -hmm this is a good choice that I'm making. Or, <laughs> so I remember at one point I made a long post and this was a post for all these college people. And it was, and, it, and I wrote, this is why I didn't vaccinate my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it and it, but it, it was like sort of me coming forward with some of my thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was a really important moment because mo- I would say most people were like, you're an idiot. But there were a few people who said, who took the time to answer me, what I consider and sort of respectful to my way of thinking at the time and sort of like, well, here's, here's some things to think about. And now I've come to really see that as important for communicating to people in cults. It's sort of like, you can't just tell them that they're idiots. This doesn't work. So you kind of like, so they respect, they at least pretended to respect what I thought and they, and it had a huge, like it got through. I was like, oh, this is, because I couldn't dismiss these people outright because I knew them. Like they were, they're nice, smart. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone else I would just dismiss is like, you're just part of the mainstream. Like you don't understand, right? So, so when, so I started to read about COVID and I was taking in the information. Like I was, I was believing it. Mm-hmm. I was believing the scientists. And that was before I left the group. And I was aware, because I lived with my mother who was 88, I was aware that she was going to need to be protected. 
because it was, you know, early in COVID, it was like, oh my God, all the, all the old people are going to die. Like it was just <laughs> a very heightened sense of everything was so scary. Right. And then in those last couple of weeks before lockdown, there was a very specific interchange that I had where, and I, I never did this, but I, I said, yeah, okay, well, I volunteered my family to do this little bit of service to make a meal for the community. Mm-hmm. And this, this was right when lockdown first happened and we were going to make a meal and distribute it. And I wrote an email to the community saying, yeah, my family will, my family will uh, volunteer for this position, but, but we'll just do it because we want to social distance. So, mm-hmm. and, and this, this, I think you'll understand it, but just setting that slight boundary set off a thing. Mm-hmm. And the guru hit reply all on an email <laughs> and was like, was like, oh, are you going to be social distancing from each other? And, and it, was this, it was this constant mocking tone. It was mm-hmm. a mocking tone of, oh, right you're going to do this thing. And this is, this is a very normal thing for him to have kind of a sarcastic mocking tone for somebody who, especially towards me, he did this all the time towards me about like, I'm going to have a little bit of a boundary or a, or a need. And that was just not allowed, you know? So he mocked me. And I remember feeling like, this is my mom. This is my mom's health. Mm-hmm. And that may have been the first time that I let myself consciously kind of defy him. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was totally COVID related and it was, but it was also related to me starting to let myself believe science again, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so it's, it, it was a very, it was, it's really interesting to think about how my brain started to let myself think. And then at that moment, it let myself go like, you know, I'm not going to like bow into your pressure. I'm going to social distance for my mom because I don't yeah. want her to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I guess that's breaking that, um, that the fact that it's all the information. And again, this is very typical of cults, as, as you know, but all the information, all the instruction, your whole worldview comes through this single source. Yes. And all, all of these groups try to create that in very various different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it's a single person, like a, a leader of a, a group, a guru, a sheikh, what, yes. or whatever the description, it's easier in a way because everything comes through them mm-hmm. and um, nothing else is of, of any value. Um, listen to me. I'm the, the sole source of authority. Yeah. Um, but it was the exactly. same for my old group as well. Um, couldn't read any, or you were very, very much, um, discouraged from reading other literature, other sources of information. So it's this control of of information, you know, that is so typical of, of these groups. So I guess it was it was one of the the first moments where you started to allow yourself to think for yourself. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We're coming to the end of our interview um, now, Todd. So um, how do we how do we sum all that up? Um, I think first <laughs> of all, I, I just want to say. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And, um, you know, if you're up for it, we'll, we'll definitely get you on again to talk about specific um, things that, that you can lend your wisdom to, if that's okay. Um, uh, what, what's, your, what, what's in the future for you in the next sort of uh, six months to a year? What are you, when's your PhD due for completion or what, what have you got in the pipeline? Um, well, 
the PhD's got three more years. I'm experimenting with um, making music. Um, I'm in, my program is performance related, mm -hmm. so I'm working on performance. I think I'm, I mean, the really cool thing is that I'm coming to Europe and I've been invited by the ex-members over there. And we're going to have an opportunity, I think, to really do a lot of healing together. And a lot of doing things that we weren't allowed to do in the group, like, <laughs> boy, this wine is delicious. <laughs> and um, I feel like since I'm still in the same little town as the, the cults, getting out of here is really, really, really important for my sanity. The only reason I'm still here is because my partner's here and my school that I love is here. And I think um, I am, I'm really looking for a way to tell this story in unique and helpful ways. I, I, I don't know. Like, I still feel like I'm, here's the, here's the metaphor. I still have a giant blank wall in my house and I don't know what to put on it. Yeah. And it's that feeling of like, who am I? What, do, what do I like? Uh, like here's, here's a couple of little funny tidbits. I, I have a hair appointment and I'm kind of like, am I going to color my hair or something weird? Like I want, <laughs> I want different colored glasses. I want these things that the, it's this very gradual evolution of like, how do I want to express myself? My, my feelings matter now. I get to have orange glasses or like I, I, I get, I get to do these things. And, and after 23 years, that, that feeling, I don't know, that may never subside the feeling of sort of like, Oh my God, I don't have to go there on Thursday night. Yeah. Or like, yeah. like how does, so, so the school it's happening in the context of school, but really I'm going to be searching for like, how do I, how do I express? How do I, tell the story how do i help how do i what kind of activism do i want to do i, mm -hmm. I don't know do i write a book do i write a play do i i don't know i have no idea you have options now don't you and that is the I, brilliant thing when you leave yeah, a group you suddenly have options so thank you so much for joining us today it's been absolutely fascinating and uh, lovely to talk to you thank you so much um, for joining us on couple of hackers you are so welcome and thank you for doing this work and for being present on social media so that I can find you <laughs> and have another opportunity to connect with people and tell my story. Thank you.